1: in october of 2008 with the world still shaking from the collapse of lehman brothers and the future of the entire financial system being questioned in a tiny corner of the internet a white paper was quietly published with little fanfare the paper ran to eight pages and it concluded thus We have proposed a system for electronic transactions without relying on trust. The network is robust in its unstructured simplicity. Nodes work all at once with little coordination. They do not need to be identified since messages are not routed to any particular place and only need be delivered on a best efforts basis. Nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will, accepting the proof of work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. The white paper was titled simply Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And its author identified himself with an email address, the URL Bitcoin.org, and a name, Satoshi Nakamoto. Just three months later in January of 2009, the technology outlined in Nakamoto's eight-page white paper appeared. And though few people realized it at the time, the world had changed. Eight years later, With the units of Nakamoto's simple peer-to-peer electronic cash system changing hands at $6,000 each, we examine the rise of the hottest and most misunderstood asset class in the financial world. This week on Adventures in Finance, the story of Bitcoin and the blockchain. Today is the 26th of October, 2017, and welcome to episode 38 of Adventures in Finance. Back in the Cayman Island headquarters is my trusty producer, James. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. So, James, obviously the most important question at the top of each show, what's the old uh, Twitter followers up to this week?
0: Well, my Twitter followers are up to 198 followers. Ooh, I'm
1: two off of 200. Two off of 200. I can almost hear the frantic fingers dashing to the keyboards now to try and be your 200th follower. Can you imagine a bigger honor in life? I'm struggling to think of one myself.
0: Yeah, well, I think my mum my might think it's, you know, quite an honor,
1: well, right? Like, well, possibly, but I would have to say that if you've got 198 followers and one of them isn't your mum. There's deeper issues at work here. I would have thought she would have been number one. What the hell's going on? Have you upset your mum?
0: Uh, I don't know. I haven't spoken to her in a while. Mm,
1: okay. Well, Maybe
0: I should make a phone call. Well, yeah, I should. <laughs> I'll tweet her. I'll tweet her. Why not? There you go.
1: Why not? Now, the next thing we're going to end up doing is trying to push uh, Twitter followers onto James's mum at AIF James's mum. <laughs> okay. Well, look, let's, let's move on to the important part of this week's podcast, which is Bitcoin. Now, there's a lot of mystery and confusion surrounding Bitcoin, as well as a complete bifurcation in opinion about both its place in the world and its future. But much of that story I want to save for another day. What I want to do today is tell the story of how Bitcoin and the blockchain emerged. Examine the legend of Satoshi Nakamoto, the mysterious inventor of Bitcoin, and try and get a little sense for what the immediate future might hold. We begin the story with Trace Mayer, host of the Bitcoin Knowledge podcast and one of the very first Bitcoin evangelists. And he takes us back to the beginning. And by the beginning, I mean the very
0: beginning. So a lot of people think the Bitcoin just came out of nothing. Uh, But the tradition is actually very, very long. I mean, we had the first coining of gold thousands of years ago. We had double-entry bookkeeping in the 1300s. We had the polymaths, you know, these are the universal geniuses, the people who have IQs of 180 plus, you know, Isaac Newton, Nicholas Copernicus, Johann van Goethe, all of these are immense monetary scientists. Uh, for example, Nicholas Copernicus, before he wrote the treatise on heliocentric theory, he wrote a treatise on uh, money and interest rates. Uh, Isaac Newton developed the gold standard because there was a crash with the Bank of England in 1696. Emanuel Swedenborg, the father of anatomy, the you know the the father of neuroscience as Princeton calls him, who uh, precursed the idea of things like the neuron and and of phenomenal anatomists, he was actually master of the minds up in Sweden and he took 3 years out of his scientific life to consult and help Get that country back on track after they had inflationary problems Uh, and then you have people like Johann van Guta who wrote Faust considered the greatest work in German literature he you know in Faust Part 2 his magnum opus published a year before he died he lays out all the negative consequences that come to a society when they debase the money and then we had the French Revolution they made it illegal to use gold and silver And under penalty of death, and that led to the French Revolution. So you had repression over there with Robespierre, and you had regeneration in the Americas with the Continental Dollar, Uh, and you had the seizing of gold with Executive Order 6102 under Roosevelt. And Mussolini, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, all of these people made holding gold illegal, because gold is not just a barbarous relic. It's an essential check and balance in the political machinery. And the polymaths You know, humanity's brightest minds ever, all of them have understood this and all of them have been involved in money and monetary science.
1: So the idea of monetary evolution is not new, nor is the link between money and power, particularly in the context of using money to control a population. But this time, advances in technology have given rise to an altogether different kind of currency, one which has grown and flourished among the very brightest minds on Earth in a way that makes it hard to stop.
0: You know, we have all these advances in information and communication structure. We have internet protocols. We have DARPA, and we have uh, the invention of asymmetric cryptography. And then we have the mid-90s. We have the crypto wars cases. And, you know, I'm actually in high school, but people like Dr. Adam Back who's cited in both the Tor white paper and the Bitcoin white paper, he's out there leading the charge and they take cases to the United States Supreme court because under the munitions act, it was illegal to export cryptography and the U S Supreme court upheld cryptography as freedom of speech. And so I'm watching this as like a teenager, you know, like, you know, and I'm sitting at the feet of general Adam back and and he's leading the charge of the crypto wars. You know, he's one of our modern day polymaths and, and, you know, I'm involved with things like PGP and I'm like, Oh, this is so cool. I can like encrypt an email and nobody can read it. And I, you know, and I'm involved with, with virtual currencies and get ga- in virtual games and stuff like this. And, and then Napster comes out and then Napster gets shut down because it's centralized. And then you have things like BitTorrent come out and, and they can't shut down BitTorrent. And why can't they shut down BitTorrent? Because it's a decentralized distributed network that's, a, that's a basically an internet protocol.
1: The fact that blockchain technology is evolving from and being built around an internet protocol is hugely important to understand.
0: And so this whole time that the internet is being built, it's the protocol guys you know, that are really building it at the base layers, things like TCP/IP, HTTP, SMTP, VOIP. You know, it's the protocol guys who are really building the Internet in this censorship-resistant way. And then they create things like the IETF so that building the protocols requires wide consensus. And that way, not, there are not any particular choke points on the Internet. And it, and it keeps it so that you have this free flow of information at a technical level. And then, you know, I'm just going along, I'm, I'm learning about money and gold, and I'm writing a paper for for law school about gold. And all of a sudden on the you know, I, I graduate from law school and I have about two years. And so I just do my own thing and I'm, I'm writing my blog run to Gold. And then I, f- I come across Bitcoin on the internet. And remember, Bitcoin gets released. The The white paper is actually released in October of 2008. Bitcoin gets released in, in January of 2009. It's the same the same week that I published my book, The Great Credit Contraction. And so, you know, I'm kind of involved with Bitcoin and it, and it starts growing. And then uh, I decide, you know what, I'm going to stake my public reputation on this. And we have to keep in mind that this is – Currency is just one application of this protocol, but we're actually building a protocol. We're not building a cryptocurrency. Like, that's an easy abstraction for people to understand, but we're building an internet protocol, and this protocol is going to enable us to establish trust in a completely new way on the in society, and it's going to enable us to transfer value over a communications channel. In fact, that's what it's doing now, and And it's pretty much, in my opinion, it's pretty much unstoppable now. It has seven network effects all taking place at the same time. They exponentially and and quadratically reinforce each other. I mean, eBay only had one network effect with buyers and sellers, and then they added a second with PayPal, and they became indomitable. And so once once an internet protocol gets entrenched, things like SMTP for email— you can have stuff that's way better than, than the SMTP protocol, but everybody still uses it 30 years after the fact, even though it's far inferior, because of all the network effects. And so this this network effect of transferring value over a communications channel, which Bitcoin is, it now has these seven network effects. It's pretty much indomitable. It's the only blockchain that has liquidity, security, and scalability, and And so these next eight years, 16 years of Bitcoin, we're going to see a phenomenal tsunami or sea change, a complete inversion of our current environment, uh, because we're going to have to rebuild everything in society using these new tools that the polymaths have gifted to us.
1: But what are these gifts, these seven network effects, which, according to Trace, make bitcoin's position unassailable
0: so when i look at bitcoin i look i i look at how it's growing and i've divided it up into seven main network effects that are all taking root at the same time. And the closer you are to the first of these network effects, the more essential your business is or or your product is or whatever it is, the more essential it is to the growth and development of the Bitcoin ecosystem. And so the first network effect is speculation. You got to be able to secure your Bitcoins. You got to be able to trade them, hence wallets and exchanges. Uh, Then we've got Uh, The second network effect, which is merchants who accept Bitcoin because people hold them. Consumers are going to start using uh, Bitcoin because merchants accept it. So that's a third network effect. Because of these three network effects, the price of Bitcoin goes up relative to other assets in the economy, which increases the ROI for the the block reward, so miners step in and begin securing the network to a greater degree, which is the fourth network effect. And currently, the Bitcoin network uses about as much electricity as the entire country of Macedonia does uh, in a year. You know, so a country of two million people—that's how much uh, electricity is going into securing the blockchain. Uh, it's really becoming a force to be reckoned with. Uh, the fifth, the fifth network effect is going to be. The developers, as we've talked about, the polymaths, the smartest developers, the most competent, the most skilled, what are they going to work on? They're going to work on the the Mount Everest, the, the greatest challenge, the hardest problem. Uh, and so, you know, as that block reward goes up, as that market cap increases, it gets more competitive. There's less room at the top of the mountain with the rarefied air. You have to be that much better condition, uh, and, and physical, you know, mental ability in order to perform. So the developers, you know, they want to get up that mountain because, you know, they have this creative genius or, or whatever that's intrinsically driving them. Then we have the sixth network effect of financialization. And this is where we have a more, we have more pipelines and more shunts for capital from the traditional monetary and economic system into Bitcoin. Things like, ledger x with uh, calls and puts and swaps uh, etfs uh, and other things and then the seventh network effect which is when bitcoin will reach its final destiny Uh, it will become the world reserve settlement currency in addition to uh, so many other applications for establishing trust and so those are the seven network effects all taking root at the same time And if it is to actually reach that World Reserve Settlement currency status, I mean, millions of dollars per Bitcoin in price is definitely not outside the realm of of potentiality.
1: A Bitcoin price in the millions of dollars will have many of you shaking your heads, and many more of you salivating at the prospect, and we'll come back to the price of Bitcoin a little later. But before we do, we need to understand the origins of Bitcoin. Who was responsible for the creation of this cryptographical phenomenon? The signs point to a mysterious, unknown figure who authored the original Bitcoin white paper and who goes by the name Satoshi Nakamoto. But his identity, even amongst the Bitcoin community, remains a mystery.
0: Satoshi is a synonymous name for the creator or creators of Bitcoin. He wrote basically an academic white paper full of citations and published that in October. And before he actually published his white paper, he he collaborated with some other people, you know, sending, asking for some suggestions. So, for example, he emailed Dr. Adam back and, and was like, you know, I, I'm— going to be releasing this white paper. I'm citing you in it because it's, you know, Adam, Dr. Back had come up with uh, Hashcash, which is a form of proof of work, which is one of the three essential pieces in order to have Bitcoin. And he was like, you know, what do you, what do you think of the paper? And Dr. Back was like, well, have you, have you looked at Wei Dai's work? And so Satoshi ended up citing Wei Dai in the paper too. This concept of Bitcoin, it's not just, it's not just some like hokey pokey clown car, uh, experiment. I mean, this is some of the, it is some of the greatest intellectual combustion that the human race has ever seen ever because it combines everything from Austrian school of economics to the latest internet, uh, protocols to game theory, to hydro, to, to thermodynamics with the, with the pro, with the chips to all of our internet protocol and routing and and all of this stuff. And so, you know, a lot of some people, you know, Satoshi used to be much more active in the community. He's very he's stepped very much away from it now, probably just because it's become something a lot larger than he thought. And he's probably still around just under a different pseudonym or whatever.
1: Another member of the Bitcoin community, Bruce Kleinman, author of the book The Bitcoin Tutorial, has his own theory as the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto.
2: So as most of us are aware, um, the origin story of Bitcoin borders on the mythical. And there's a lot that we don't know, but there are facts, guideposts that we do know um, with an enormous amount of certainty. So fact number one is the white paper, which was published under the pseudonym of uh, Satoshi in October of 2008. Now that white paper, which, by the way, I encourage everyone to read it, it although there are some deep technical aspects to it. It, it, It's an extremely well-written document, and it's available on the internet. Just Google uh, Satoshi white paper, and you'll you'll, uh, uh, find it. So that white paper was published again in October of 2008, and given the level of detail in that white paper, it's clear that quite a bit of work had been done prior to 2008. So this wasn't a a kind of theoretical, lofty, in-the-clouds uh, document it was very much uh, a stake in the ground and in fact the bitcoin blockchain went live just a few months later in January of 2009 so clearly the white paper was a way of announcing the work that had been ongoing for quite some time now if you look at that white paper and you look at what needed to go in to Bitcoin. And, and the blockchain was invented at the same time as Bitcoin. Um, I'll break it down into kind of four uh, uh, key facets. Number one is the cryptography that uh, secures the blockchain, so that we can uh, transact um, anonymously in some cases, but transact across the blockchain with uh, counterparties that we don't necessarily trust, and yet those transactions are very secure. Then there's, moving up a step conceptually, there's the cybersecurity of the blockchain itself. How is it that we have um, uh, tens of billions of dollars wrapped up in the Bitcoin blockchain and, to date... That blockchain itself has not been hacked. That's pretty amazing. Some of the exchanges have been hacked. And unfortunately, some people have had their wallets hacked. But the blockchain that underpins Bitcoin has never been hacked, which is, uh, again, pretty amazing, especially when uh, it seems that every month we hear about some uh, uh, um, uh, corporation or agency being hacked. The third element is the software architecture, and that is how the transactions fit into the blocks, how the blocks fit into the blockchain, and how all these pieces are assembled. Fourth is the network architecture, which is how do machines across the Bitcoin network speak with each other? How do wallets talk to full nodes, how do full nodes talk to mining nodes, and how does all all of that get tied together. So again, we've got cryptography, cybersecurity, software architecture, and network architecture. Now, if you look at those four elements those are four distinct disciplines, and they tend to be somewhat siloed. So it's unusual, for example, that you would find someone who was gifted in the art of cryptography and also was gifted in the art of network architecture. That's not to say that such an individual doesn't exist, but it's pretty unusual. So the likelihood of any one individual spanning all four of those Um, silos, I I put it at at zero. So um, I can't tell you if it was three people or four people or five people, but I think it's extremely safe to assume that um, the number is somewhere in there, three, four, five people. There's a fifth element that I haven't yet mentioned, and that is once you've assembled the blockchain technology. Once you've built Bitcoin and you've got it up and running, let's just imagine for a moment that that was three individuals. Those three individuals would have been very, very close to all of that machinery for quite some time. And that puts you in a position where it's difficult for you to think of all of the ways that the machinery might be broken. So in addition to, let's just say for the time being, the the three founders of Bitcoin, um, I am am a believer that there was probably an additional person whose job it was to verify and try to break the machinery of Bitcoin. Um, That person would have been brought on later in the game. They would have been told very little about how the blockchain works. And their specific role would be to, to exercise and attempt to break the work of the other three individuals so in my mind the the uh, 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 pseudonym of Satoshi was very likely four separate people
1: but whether Satoshi is a lone shadowy figure or a team of polymaths working together to build something extraordinary the results are such that whether we realize it or not the world has likely been changed forever by the arrival of Bitcoin and the blockchain and the intellectual capacity of its architects is truly astounding.
0: We have the smartest people in the world that have now honed in on Bitcoin's beacon. You know, because if you're, if you're one of the smartest people in the world, what mountain do you climb, right? Do you, do you climb the little mountain? No, you go and find the biggest, tallest, hardest mountain to climb because that's the most challenging one for your intellect. Well, guess what? Bitcoin is that mountain. And so the the brightest minds honed in on Bitcoin extremely early and began climbing this mountain. And we're just barely getting out of proof of concept phase, and it's got a $100 billion market cap. Uh, The the polymaths truly are shaking the world, boom, With, with not only Bitcoin, but all of the internet protocols that they've developed. But Bitcoin is the holy grail for these cypherpunks and for a lot of these polymaths. And so it's extremely exciting to just watch them go to work because they're going to lift humanity to an entirely new level, just like the polymaths of the, of the 17th and 18th centuries lifted humanity to an entirely different level.
1: One name which keeps cropping up when digging into the architects of the blockchain is Dr. Adam Back. And Dr. Back is assembling an astonishing array of talent.
0: Dr. Adam Back, he holds a PhD in distributed systems, in other words, distributed decentralized networks. He's a cryptographer. Uh, he's CEO of Blockstream. Blockstream has raised over $100 million, and they're focused solely on core Bitcoin development. So they're working at the protocol level. And one of their hiring roles is basically they, whoever they hire has to be one of the domain experts in the world. Plus, they have to ha- they have to have a specialty in a secondary domain. <laughs> so, I mean, we're talking about th- th- this. is a this is a company that basically has a hundred million dollars plus to just hire polymaths and let them work on whatever they want. <laughs> and they're working on Bitcoin. And so, for some people, uh, Blockstream is very much uh, their antithesis <laughs> because you know if you're on the court. The last thing you want to do is is be playing against Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, who also have a a blank check, (laughs) and so that's really what we're uh, what we're seeing. And Dr. Back is 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 the lead coach of the Chicago Bulls of the '90s, and of course he encounters opposition from people who want to make Bitcoin in their own image or whatever. Uh, But you know they're they're really you know when when we're dealing with when we're dealing with Bitcoin, another another fascinating aspect of this is that it's a free open source software project. That means you can't you can't really fire people with Bitcoin because they're working on it for free. And Mises in his book Human Action, he has an entire chapter on the creative genius. You know, most people what drives their human action is their desire to make profit or Uh, you know, they have to work in order to provide for their family or whatever. But then you get the creative geniuses. And the creative genius is kind of a whole subsection of labor or human action that is the result solely of people who find the work itself intrinsically fulfilling. And so they do the work solely because of the joy they get from doing the work. And now with Bitcoin, You know, the the polymaths who've honed in on Bitcoin's beacon, they find the work fulfilling just in itself, intrinsically.
1: This group of brilliant minds working to build something just for the intellectual satisfaction of having done so creates a very powerful dynamic. One which suggests Bitcoin and the blockchain exist outside many of the usual social norms.
0: So they don't care what you think. They don't care what you want. They don't care what your government policy is, they don't care what the ROI is on your business. They find working on Bitcoin to be intrinsically fulfilling, and so they do, that's what they work on to the exclusion of pretty much all the other considerations out there. And so this provides an incredibly interesting dynamic into how Bitcoin evolves, how it grows, why it grows, how it be, how it extensifies, how it becomes more useful, what types of features get built into it, who actually has any input or say into what happens, how it gets guided in its in its growth and development, because it's all a meritocracy also. So it's very exciting to see people that are ideologically motivated and find the work intrinsically fulfilling, just being able to run, and have a complete heyday working on Bitcoin. Because isn't that what you would want? Wouldn't you want Isaac Newton or Johann van Guta or Leonardo da Vinci or Copernicus or Galileo to have the intellectual freedom and the financial freedom to work on whatever they want to work on? You know, and, and they'll... whatever you know they're, they're gonna they're gonna build some really really cool things that's where this this great fight of humanity really the stuff of movies where the world is rethinking what money is it's taking place on the battlefield of internet protocols right now and guess what the main protocol the dominant one it's bitcoin so that's where the fight is taking place
1: this band of polymath geniuses creating cool things have given us bitcoin and the blockchain technology which underpins it but what exactly is a bitcoin and how does it differ from the blockchain here's bruce kleinman
2: we tend to associate and somewhat conflate Bitcoin and the blockchain, when indeed, they are two very different things. So blockchain technology, which to be clear, was invented by this same group of people at about the same time that we all learned about Bitcoin. Blockchain technology underpins the Bitcoin cryptocurrency. It underpins other cryptocurrencies. And indeed, applications are being built today that don't have anything to do with cryptocurrencies using blockchain technology. Blockchain technology, in a nutshell, is a kind of database. It's a distributed database. Um, It's an unusual database, not only in the sense that it's distributed amongst thousands of computers around the world, it's also an unusual database in that there is no central controlling agent. Um, There are many databases that are are, uh, uh, distributed for the sake of redundancy and reliability, but at the end of the day, there is always a controlling Um, body or a controlling facility that's in charge of the database. And that's not the case with the blockchain. Um, These thousands of computers, which all have their own copy of the blockchain, collaborate, using the protocol, using the rules that are cast in stone um, for the particular blockchain in order to maintain this database while none of the thousand computers are the number one computer. There is no such thing as a computer that controls the Bitcoin blockchain. In other words, these thousand computers are peers as opposed to a hierarchy. Um, That's unusual and, and really one of the great innovations of blockchain technology. Bitcoin is an application that runs on top of blockchain technology. And now we're seeing other applications. For example, we're starting to see exploration into um, uh, running something like the NASDAQ stock market rather than using a centralized computing system using a distributed computing system built on top of blockchain technology.
1: So the difference between Bitcoin and the blockchain is fairly simple, but important to understand. However, the single most visible representation of the Bitcoin phenomenon to most people and the facet of all this technology upon which most people focus, often without understanding anything about the underlying technology, is one thing and one thing only, the price.
0: So the Bitcoin price is a very fascinating thing. Uh, One is we've never seen anything like this in the history of the world. We've never seen a rapid monetization. We've seen demonetization, you know, things like the Weimar uh, Reichmark, uh, you know, the German Reichmark. We've seen hyperinflation, but we've never seen hypermonetization. Perhaps the closest thing was the euro when it came out, right? Now, the fascinating thing about how the Bitcoin price moves is first the supply is limited in amount. And I don't think people fully appreciate this. Uh, Even gold is not limited in amount. We don't know exactly how many ounces of gold there are. And every time we do a transaction, we don't verify with 100% the the quantity and the quality of the gold. Uh, We don't really have any asset out there which we have strictly limited in amount. I mean, maybe things like the Mona Lisa, but nothing that's durable, fungible, portable, divisible. You know, all of these characteristics that make that could make something money. And so, you know, Bitcoin is limited in amount, and I don't think people understand that uh, truly. Then, you know, in in our supply demand equation, we've only got two variables: we've got speculative demand, and we've got transactional demand. And speculative demand, that well, that's the ferret on meth, right? It doesn't know where it's going. It just is going all over the place all the time. It's got ADD. It's Mr. Market, as, as Buffett talks about. And so then we look at transactional demand. Well, the fascinating thing about Bitcoin is the utility that it provides to people involved in the second and third network effects, and actually some of the anterior network effects also, is that the price of Bitcoin is completely irrelevant to the value uh, that they derive from using it, whether it's a nickel, whether it's ten thousand dollars of Bitcoin, you can still transfer value over the communications protocol. So the price elasticity of demand at the edges for these transactional demand use cases, which is the velocity of Bitcoin, that is, I mean, it doesn't really matter what that what that pricing is, and so that that adds some incredibly uh, unusual pricing and economic theory components to Bitcoin in terms of figuring out where its price is and where its price is going to go. And so we've got that. Then we've got the speculative demand use case, and that's where somebody just wants to buy it in order for it to be worth more later. Well, Bitcoin, it has the lowest cost of pretty much any asset out there. You You can store $100 million and you don't pay any storage fees. And then you're only subject to exchange rate risk. In fact, you have less risk holding Bitcoin itself than you have holding gold. Because even a gold coin in your hand, it has to be centralized at a place in space and time. You know, when we're we're doing weighted average costs of capital, when we're trying to figure out, you know, all of our advanced financial management, what is the first principle? What is the base premise that we're going to start from and reason from? What is the risk-free rate? What is the risk-free asset? And for the most part, people say, oh, it's the dollar. Well, guess what? The dollar is subject to being confiscated, seized. It's uh, it's subject to inflation. It's got, it has, who knows what the emission schedule is. We have no idea how many dollars there are going to be in five years. We don't even know how many dollars there are right now. And so, you know, there are so many forms of risk that are attached to the United States dollar. And also it's not limited in amount, But it is extensible, you know. But gold, it's limited in amount, but it's not extensible. But Bitcoin is both limited in amount and extensible.
1: So the reasons for Bitcoin's value are actually quite clear. But what is its place in a world of precious metals and competing currencies, most of which are unbacked by anything but the promises of feckless governments? Well, potentially, its place is a lot closer to the center of the monetary world than many perhaps expect.
0: And so is it going to be able to outcompete? fiat currency? Is it going to be able to outcompete commodity currency like gold and silver? Uh, That's what the market's showing. You know, you look at the chart of Bitcoin and it is outcompeting these other forms rapidly. And, you know, people want to say, oh, they bring up the bubble argument. Well, guess what? Bitcoin is an equity-based monetary system, just like gold is. And so you can have expansions and contractions in the price but you can your your bitcoin like gold can never become worthless you know bitcoin has never become worthless will it become worthless in the future i suppose there may be some probability or possibility that that could happen but it's getting highly highly unlikely and every day that goes by that it doesn't is another day that it's been around right and so with bitcoin never being able to become worthless like gold, then it's just a matter of you know how much capital is going to get allocated into it, and right now we've got two hundred trillion dollars worth of capital in gold, cash, bonds, and stocks. You know, you want to talk about a bubble? Well, the bubble is the fiat currency bubble. You know, from quantitative easing and and legal tender laws and all of these things, uh, and that you know that is is a bubble that can evaporate into absolutely nothing. You know, how much are Reichmarks worth or Zimbabwe dollars? Those can actually become worth absolutely nothing. The United States dollar, it could become worth absolutely nothing. There is nothing that that limits the United States dollar intrinsically in amount. You know, gold is limited in amount by its atoms. Bitcoin is limited in amount by numbers and cryptography. But the United States dollar is limited in amount only because of crypto, because of counterfeiting laws and things like that. And so it could actually become absolutely worthless. You're having an immovable object, which is math, being confronted with new, you know, the the dominant violent superpower of the world, you know, wielding nuclear weapons. And guess what? Nuclear weapons can't solve a math problem. That's not how math works. And so it's going to be very interesting to see this clash of two laws of the universe. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, math, math might be around a lot longer than, uh, than, than the alternative.
1: However, the rise of Bitcoin on the blockchain has not been without its problems. And in recent months, much commentary has revolved around the fact that blockchain has been forked, well and truly forked in some cases. Bruce Kleiman explains the curious phenomenon of forking.
2: So as you can imagine, um, between 2009 and today, the um, Bitcoin protocol and the the various pieces of software that make up um, all of the machinery of Bitcoin um, have been updated. There, There have been bugs that have been found, there are new features that have been added, and yet, We are still compatible today with the original Bitcoin as it existed back in 2009. And by that, I mean, if you had purchased some Bitcoin, metaphorically speaking, you had purchased some Bitcoin back in 2009 and just had it sitting on your computer for all of this time, you could now use that Bitcoin today. The Bitcoin that we have today, totally backward compatible with Bitcoin that you might have purchased stretching all the way back to 2009. So those bug fixes and those feature enhancements that have been added in the meantime, we call those soft forks. So a soft fork are changes that have been made, improvements that are backward compatible, so no one has to worry about losing their Bitcoin, um, or no one has to worry necessarily about updating the software that they are running, because with a soft fork, you know that the latest and greatest Bitcoin machinery is backward compatible with everything that came before it. Then we move into what we call hard forks. And these are a different animal. With a hard fork, you break compatibility. So let's take um, a few months ago, we had a hard fork that produced a new flavor of Bitcoin called Bitcoin Cash. And Bitcoin Cash has some different features. um, And those different features are incompatible with... which what I'll call for the time being the legacy Bitcoin. So if today you purchase some Bitcoin cash, that Bitcoin cash is not backward compatible with the legacy Bitcoin blockchain.
1: But aside from competing interests and disgruntled miners causing so many forking problems, another brickbat thrown at Bitcoin and the blockchain is the question of how the technology will fare in the face of such things as power outages, like the one we saw recently in Puerto Rico.
0: So a lot of people, one of their concerns about Bitcoin is, oh, the internet could go down. Or, oh, there might be a financial collapse like 2008. Well, you know, we've had pretty much everything that could happen to Bitcoin happen. You know, the major exchange went down. Uh, we had a fork in 2013. We had another fork here in August. And Bitcoin's still chugging along. Now, what, what Dr. Back and Blockstream have done is they've actually put out satellites and these satellites by the end of 2017 will cover the entire planet and you'll be able to download the blockchain anywhere. That means that you can download the blockchain, verify it for yourself from a satellite that costs $100 and you don't even have to go through traditional internet infrastructure think of that resilience that means if you're in Puerto Rico for example and you have a satellite that works and you have a solar panel to to power your your computer you could actually download and run the blockchain and you know as bitcoin extensifies and we get layer 2 built out things like lightning network you could actually be become a lightning network hub Everybody else could have their cell phones and they could interact over your lightning network channel transferring Bitcoins around. And then you'd settle eventually uh, on the main Bitcoin blockchain. And you might even be able to do that with an uplink via the, uh, the satellite or through something like an Iridium satellite phone. You just send a text message that contains all the transaction information. And so in terms of the the raw resiliency the bitcoin network now has custom hardware with asics it has custom internet infrastructure with satellites and all of this is incredibly bullish for increasing the censorship resistance and the overall resiliency of the bitcoin network
1: while it's hard to anticipate every challenge that bitcoin will face and there really is no way of knowing how it will deal with issues it may encounter going forward it's certainly weathered all the squalls it's been battered by thus far. But to many people, the other looming shadow on what otherwise seems a sunny landscape is that of government intervention.
0: So a lot of people raise a concern about, well, what if governments make Bitcoin illegal? <laughs> and, and, you know, you kind of have to laugh at this because the the people who have been in charge of of building the Bitcoin software pretty much since its very beginning, have had that very purpose in mind. In fact, they, they don't believe in voting. They don't believe in political protest. If you want to change the world, you write software code. You know. And so Bitcoin is that software code. It's applied financial cryptography with a decentralized, peer-to-peer, censorship-resistant network. And so, okay, let's say that you're in China and China makes Bitcoin illegal. Well, you can get a $100 satellite dish, point it up at a satellite, and you can stream down the Bitcoin blockchain. It means it doesn't have to go through the Great Firewall of China. It means that nobody in China that could spy on you knows that you're even using Bitcoin because you're just using an off-the-shelf satellite dish that other people use to get their cable TV or whatever. And yet you're able to run a complete cold storage, hardened OS, fully encrypted hard disk laptop that you're holding your private keys to Bitcoin on, and you're running a full node that's connected via this satellite. And you can do this satellite anywhere in the world. And so Bitcoin, okay, if it's illegal, you might be using it for transactions that uh, it might be a little bit more cumbersome to use it for transactions. And you might have to find trusted counterparties that you're going to interact with. But just because the government makes something illegal doesn't necessarily mean that it stops the activity. In fact, usually all it does is make engaging in the activity even that much more profitable. And so places like Venezuela, Argentina, uh, Zimbabwe, Bitcoins trade for about $10,000 each in Zimbabwe because of all the currency controls and the hyperinflation and all of this garbage. And people want them so bad there and it's hard to get them in and out of there. So you have to pay these large premiums. And Bitcoin is a very large cash market. So are are all of these cryptocurrencies. And now with things like homomorphic encryption, zero knowledge, uh, contingent proofs, ZK snarks, uh, CoinJoin, uh, mast, Merkelized, abstract syntax, syntax trees, all of these innovations, snore signatures, uh, lightning network, the additional layers that we're going to be able to build up because of segregated witness, all of these things are going to drastically decrease the cost of using Bitcoin, both in time, money, and more importantly, in privacy.
1: Now, whilst I could wax lyrical for hours about ZK snarks, masts, and merkelized abstract syntax trees, to say nothing of schnorr signatures, it's segregated witness which is perhaps most important to define in the context of this story. Here's Bruce Kleiman again.
2: Segregated witness, unfortunately, is a term that obviously was not produced by a marketing person because it's a very technical term. But basically, the two forks segwit and the fork that I'll just call 2X, both of those forks are addressing the fact that the legacy Bitcoin blockchain has at times been uh, a traffic jam. Um, Uh, Uh, there's only so many transactions per second that the legacy Bitcoin blockchain can handle. And that number, believe it or not, is, is around three to five transactions per second. And that's not a lot of transactions when you think about all of the people all around the world using Bitcoin. And so when you get people generating more than that small number of transactions per second, you build a backlog. And that backlog can get fairly large. To the point that it might take hours, if not days, for a new transaction to be etched into the blockchain itself. So both SegWit and 2x are new approaches that allow the Bitcoin blockchain to handle more than that small number of of three to five transactions per second. The big difference for all of us to comprehend is that SegWit is a soft fork. And again, the SegWit soft fork is backward compatible with all of the Bitcoin transactions that came before it whereas the 2X enhancement is a hard fork, meaning that after that fork takes place, there will be two separate blockchains. There'll be the legacy blockchain, and then there'll be the 2X blockchain. And if you transact on the 2X blockchain, those transactions will not be compatible with those on the legacy blockchain. So I think... We all agree that adding capacity to the Bitcoin blockchain, in other words, um, allowing the Bitcoin blockchain to handle more activity per second, more activity per hour, that's a great thing. No arguments there. How we go about doing that, though, has some ramifications. So um, the SegWit enhancement, which is a very elegant Um, enhancement to the Bitcoin protocol, and does allow it to handle more transactions per second, that is, again, a soft fork. And that soft fork does not create a new blockchain, nor does it create any new Bitcoin. So the original Bitcoin blockchain, which today has about 16 million Bitcoin that have been mined, and eventually we'll have 21 million Bitcoin, at which point that'll be it, 21 million Bitcoin. Um, The introduction of SegWit does nothing to change the number of Bitcoin in circulation, and it does nothing to change that ultimate number of 21 million Bitcoin. Now, when we perform a hard fork like 2x, that's a very different animal. Because what we do is we basically Xerox copy the existing blockchain. And in the blink of an eye, on a very specific moment, in the blink of an eye, we go from 17 million legacy Bitcoin, we, out of thin air, create 17 million new 2X Bitcoin on the 2X blockchain and that 2x blockchain then moves forward to eventually reach 21 million bitcoin so the legacy blockchain and the 2x blockchain move forward in a parallel existence if they both um have users and they both drive forward will end up not with 21 million Bitcoin, eventually we'll end up with 42 million Bitcoin. And when you start to add up all of these hard forks, if, if those hard forks and their accompanying blockchain, if they continue to exist, then we'll have different flavors of Bitcoin where the total number of Bitcoin isn't 21 million, but it's 42 million or 84 million. Now, there's no guarantee. Um, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, and uh, indeed, even the legacy Bitcoin or the 2X uh, Bitcoin, any of those flavors of Bitcoin might lose so many users In other words, users might abandon one one or more of those flavors in favor of one or two of the more popular flavors. And if that happens, the value of, let's just say, Bitcoin Cash might very well go to zero, and then eventually the Bitcoin Cash blockchain might be shut down. But where we are at today is not one, not two, but by the end of this year we'll have four separate blockchains, four separate flavors of bitcoin. So whereas on January 1st of 2017, we were in a world where eventually we would build up to having 21 million bitcoin and that was kind of taken as as one of the foundational elements. Uh, one of the stone tablets, if you will, of uh, uh, the Bitcoin philosophy. Well, now we're in quite a different world. We're in, we're in a world where we have multiple flavors of Bitcoin, and when you add those multiple flavors up, you end up with some multiple 2, 3, or 4 times 21 million Bitcoin.
1: So while Segwit and 2X are horses of a different color with differing effects and differing implications for the future of Bitcoin, they're both hugely important.
2: And the reason that those two um, uh, uh, events are, are significant is everything leading up to now, um, the the future of Bitcoin has clearly resided in the legacy blockchain um, stretching all the way back to our uh, inventors that, that we refer to collectively as uh, as Satoshi. Now the question comes with this 2x hard fork, um, w- w- which unlike the previous hard forks, unlike Bitcoin Cash, unlike Bitcoin Gold, the 2x hard fork has some very heavy major players invested in the success of the 2x hard fork. So it it it's likely that you'll see a lot of credible activity backing the legacy blockchain and an equal amount of credible activity blocking the 2X blockchain. And, and I suppose that's actually the question. Is it gonna be a 50-50 amount? Is, is the new 2X blockchain gonna actually receive more support? than the legacy blockchain, or will it be the other way? Will the legacy blockchain continue to be the um, uh, the, the horse to, to bet on? And th- this isn't idle conversation because if you believe very strongly in uh, the 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 new 2x protocol, and on a forward going basis, you purchase. 2x Bitcoin as opposed to legacy Bitcoin, in a sense, you're making a bet that the 2x blockchain is going to continue to exist. And indeed, what you would like to have happen, if, if, if just you can imagine someone who puts all of their money into the 2x Bitcoin, well, that that individual would like to see the 2x blockchain actually take over and become the number one lead blockchain, because under that scenario, that person's 2x Bitcoin will go up in value. On the other hand, if that uh, uh, person invests entirely in 2x Bitcoin and the legacy blockchain continues to be the major blockchain, then that individual may be disappointed because that 2x Bitcoin will undoubtedly go down in value if fewer people back the 2x blockchain. So... When we talk about the future of Bitcoin, this is the first time in the history of Bitcoin that we've had this kind of unknown, this kind of big question mark hanging over um, uh, Bitcoin in, in the sense that if you if you make the wrong selection, if, if you blindly continue to hold legacy Bitcoin and completely ignore the 2x Bitcoin, you could find yourself a year from now with Bitcoin worth much less than um, uh, than it is today. Uh, and of course, the, the opposite is true. If you bet big on 2x, you could find yourself sorely disappointed. And nobody, but nobody knows what the outcome will be. So we, we've not had this kind of uncertainty. Sure, we, nobody has had a crystal ball that says, Uh, what the price of Bitcoin will be in a year. Uh, We've never had that. But this uncertainty over um, two credible flavors of Bitcoin and the possibility that one of those two flavors could, in the extreme, go away, That's a a giant kind of question mark that we've never had hanging over our heads. So hopefully, by the end of the year, we'll have some clarity. Um, If I had to guess, I would guess that directionally we'll have a pretty good idea by the end of 2017. But that's not to say that it'll be resolved.
1: The chances of achieving complete clarity around the future of Bitcoin, at least in anything longer than the short term, are remote. And another reason for this is the incredible proliferation of ICOs, initial coin offerings. This particular phenomenon is attracting all kinds of attention, much of it undesirable.
0: So the SEC issued some guidance about ICOs or initial coin offerings. What we're finding is that, you know, in the Wild West, and that's where we're at, Bitcoin is kind of like New York for building out this new place called Cypher Space. But in this new in this new area, we have all types of charlatans and scammers. And, you know, they're bilking billions of dollars from. Basically, people who are not very savvy or degenerate speculators who want to buy these coins that go up in value. And so you have a lot of these ICOs and you have altcoins and app coins and and all this stuff in the. And the regulators, like the SEC, uh, they've come out with warnings, and they've even started prosecuting some of the people for securities fraud and stuff like this. And you know, it's just going to be part of the. It's just going to be part of the space, and it's it's going to get increasingly more difficult for the SEC to even stay up on on what is happening let alone prosecuting any of the any of the charlatans and scammers and so it becomes very much a buyer beware caveat emptor market.
1: Now having these kinds of people involved in any market usually leads to confusion, inconvenience and pain for many and that's to say nothing of the presence of charlatans and scammers who just make it even worse. But ICOs themselves have their own idiosyncrasies which make them worthy of breaking down to understand just what all the noise is about.
2: So we've all been hearing uh, um, about ICOs, initial coin offerings. Um, uh, Those were taking place um, uh, prior to 2017, but really hitting the headlines of uh, the mainstream media in 2017. And indeed, ICOs taking place at an ever-accelerating rate during 2017. Um, The name ICO, ICO, initial coin offering is a little bit misleading, and I'd like to clarify. Underneath the umbrella of cryptocurrencies, we have two different types of cryptocurrencies. We have coins, like Bitcoin, and then we have tokens. And let me explain just very briefly what the difference is between a coin and a token. A coin, its main purpose is to be a medium of exchange. And so Bitcoin or other coins like Monero or Zcash or Ripple, those coins can be used in many different capacities. The primary purpose of the coin is to be a medium of exchange. Now, when we talk about ICOs, as a rule, There are exceptions. But as a rule, we're talking not about coins, as I just defined, but we're talking about tokens. And a token is an application-specific cryptocurrency. In other words, there's only one place that you can spend that token, and you can spend that token for the service offered by the agent or company that produced that particular uh, token. So just to make up an example, we might have um, a uh, service that provides, uh, let's say, storage. There are a few uh, companies that are providing a Dropbox-like functionality. And rather than, than raising money, through venture capitalists. Those, um, uh, those companies raised money through ICOs, through initial coin offerings. And that money funded the development of these Dropbox alternatives. Now, if you want to use one of these Dropbox alternatives, you must pay for the service in the token, the token issued by that particular company. As I mentioned, there's five or six different companies that are providing uh, this type of service. They each have their own token, and those tokens are good at exactly one place. They're good at the company who issued the token and then developed that particular flavor of service.
1: So that's how ICO coin and token offerings are differentiated. But once they're issued, what happens to them? Simply put, in many cases, they are merely a means to an end.
0: And the charlatans and the scammers, guess what? They're probably going to convert it into Bitcoin and hold it in their own private keys, <laughs> uh, because you know a lot of these altcoins and app coins and all of this stuff. Even though we have a lot of financial innovation that's happening, the ROI on them is just not there, especially not in terms of Bitcoin. And so, really, in my opinion, all those things are good for is to acquire more Bitcoin. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't justify the risk of moving out of your Bitcoin into any of these ICOs or anything like that. Uh, And the regulators are gonna be too slow to catch up on any of it anyways. So you just have to take personal responsibility and protect yourself.
1: So we've examined the origins of Bitcoin, and we've tried to get a sense of how the blockchain works, how it's changing over time, and some of the ways in which it may be challenged. But what does the future hold for this revolutionary technology? Understandably, perhaps, Trace Mayer is extremely upbeat, and a lot of the reason for that takes us right back to segregated witness and the unexpected market reaction to a fork which had caused so much angst a priori.
0: What's the crystal ball, say, for the future of Bitcoin, at least in the near to intermediate future, you know, the next six months to maybe two or three years? And I think it's extremely, extremely bright. And so when people look at Bitcoin, there's, there are actually two completely different elements. Uh, it's, it's like the difference between gold and copper. Uh, because when you change a consensus rule in these protocols, you get a completely different asset. And so pre-segregated witness and post-segregated witness Bitcoin are completely different elements, just like gold and copper are completely different. And what we saw is after Bitcoin, after segregated witness got activated, that's when the Bitcoin price really started to rally in a big way. Uh and that happened August 1st. And also what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of these forks, things like uh, Bcash, Bitcoin Gold, uh, Segwit2x. Uh, we're, we're also seeing airdrops, things like Stellar, Biteball, uh, um, BitCore. And so if you have Bitcoins and you have the technical competence then you can claim these airdrops in a very safe, secure way, and that can further juice your returns. For example, in 2017, the airdrops, excluding Bitcoin Gold and Bitcoin 2x and Segwit 2x, have amounted to about a thousand dollars per Bitcoin, so almost twenty percent of the price of a of a Bitcoin currently, and. Uh, A lot of these airdrops, you could have received them a lot sooner where, where the price was lower. So if you'd rolled them into Bitcoin at the current price, it would actually be about half a Bitcoin per Bitcoin in 2017 in terms of these airdrops, or I like to call them dividends. So, you know, figuring out how to be technically competent enough to claim these airdrops. Uh, because I think they're going to increasingly happen. I think they're going to be more and more of these airdrops happen on a regular basis, and so that's going to put even greater uncertainty into trying to price Bitcoin, arbitrage, uh, the futures markets, all of these things. Uh, you know, some people are going to have the knowledge, and some people won't. There will be asymmetric knowledge, and so there's going to be plenty of opportunities for very nimble, easy to move, technically competent people to just make. Tons of money uh, from these airdrops and these forks and stuff like that. And then also, I think that we're going to see just a complete wall of institutional money move into the Bitcoin space. Uh, And when you think about it, there is just not a lot of tradable or saleable Bitcoin. There may be 100,000, 200,000 Bitcoins that trade hands on a regular basis. Otherwise, they're either lost, they're in deep, cold storage, or they're in very strong hands. And so it's hard to actually get people to sell them. And so it's going to be very difficult for institutional money or high net worth individuals to move into Bitcoin in any particularly large way without drastically moving the price. I mean... There are there are more millionaires in the United States than there are bitcoins in circulation. <laughs> and then if you take out the bitcoins in, that that are in deep cold storage or have been lost, there's only about half a bitcoin for every millionaire in the United States alone. And so, you know, if we were to expand that out because bitcoin is a global phenomenon, there just is not a lot of bitcoin for all the millionaires in the whole uni- in the whole world. And so it's a very, very bright uh, future. You know, We're having so many new users come into Bitcoin, and if they just allocate $500 each, you know, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of buying pressure every day. So you know, this is very bullish for the Bitcoin price because everybody loves to chase the rabbit. So the higher the price goes, the higher the price goes because more people chase it because it's both a Veblen good and a Giffen good at the same time.
1: You know, the the Bitcoin phenomenon is truly, truly fascinating. I mean, everybody has an opinion, but none of us really know anything. I I defer to the likes of Trace and Bruce that really understand this thing so much better than uh, I could ever claim to. My gut tells me that right now, it is a classic bubble. I mean, the price action tells you that this thing is going to have a major correction at some point. But I uh, I think this technology is here to stay. I think it is revolutionary. And I think over time, there is just so much value in Bitcoin. I'm just like most people. i'm I'm just nervous uh, of buying them at this particular price. I think uh, I think the people that just write it off and say it's a fad, and it's all going to go away, though, I think they are sorely missing the point. And hopefully everybody listening is a little bit better informed after listening to the words of Trace and Bruce. Well, sadly, that concludes another episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we go, the usual legal disclaimer needs to be relayed. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and always please do trade responsibly. Next week, our feature segment focuses on one of the high-flying technology stocks, Tesla. We'll have plenty to say about that. But in the meantime, if you have an interesting question about this week's show, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please subscribe to us on iTunes. And uh, James, over to you for the whole review thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you want to leave a review, then please go onto iTunes and leave a review. I like getting
0: reviews almost as much as I like getting followers on my Twitter.
1: There you go. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, just follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn, so just search there for Real Vision. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at AIFJames. And you cannot follow James's mum at AIF James's mum because he's not set up yet. That's it from us for another week. We will see you back here. Thanks for listening.